pandemics, global supply chain issues, cyberware attacks, inflation, the big quit. The list of disruptions goes on and on. We're living in a different world. It's more complex and moving faster than ever. This podcast is to help guide you through these turbulent times to ensure your organization can survive and thrive by becoming disruption-proof. So let's get started. So I'm Brent Cooper, founder and CEO of Moose the Needle. We bring an entrepreneurial spirit to large organizations. Today, I wanted to talk about the uncertainty around support functions. So I'm super interested in uh, who's here and, and why this topic might uh, be of interest to you. Uh, and I'll see if I, if I touch on any of these things that um, affect you in, in your business. Uh, that are related to the support functions that perhaps you're part of or perhaps support your work or need to support your work. So what do I mean by support functions? I guess in academia and maybe in financial circles, it's often referred to as GNA, general administrative functions. So uh, they're often the groups inside of companies that are considered, you know, quote unquote overhead. They're they don't have direct considered cost centers. And so we're already starting picking up on this negative connotation towards the contribution that they make to their organizations. Everybody recognizes that you have to have those functions. Uh, but even in those of us that are running small businesses, it's, uh, it's painful to have to pay up a lot of money for those uh, functions. And uh, yeah, so some of those are, Human resources, obviously, HR, uh, the finance team, uh, whether in-source or outsource, legal. Uh, IT is often considered in there, though uh, in Europe, uh, IT is uh, often who is developing the product. So that term doesn't mean the same thing everywhere in the world. Uh, facilities or other operations type of, uh, you know, that are just uh, concentrating on the, the basic functioning, the people and the processes within the organization. And again, not uh, not directly responsible for revenue. Uh, they're all responsible somewhat for profit margins, because if we lower their costs, then obviously we're either getting closer to profitability or have greater profits. But at some point, you actually get diminishing returns. In other words, you can start cutting into what I call cutting into the muscle of those functions and you're actually then maybe uh, increasing costs in, a, in an indirect way or also indirectly affecting the ability to uh, increase revenues or even meet targets. And I'm not sure how much awareness there is in in that, this idea of uh, of cutting into muscle instead of just trimming trimming the fat, as it were. So, these groups often have, like I mentioned, sort of a negative connotation to them. Uh, people ask them for things, and these are the groups that say no. Uh, when innovation and product teams complain about corporate antibodies, this is who they're referring to. Uh, 
and you know, there's legitimate reasons for it. The policies of the GNA functions are are often extremely conservative, and they don't change over time, and they become calcified. And uh, there's nobody in there kind of reviewing these policies to make sure that they're still relevant. Uh, they're not necessarily being evaluated in terms of, you know, whether the risk of not having those policies or of changing those policies, you know, is there a different risk environment? And so we should change the way uh, the way these groups function. So there's not a lot of review. There's a lot of cutting. Um, they don't tend to see their business colleagues as internal customers. They mostly see them as like subjects, like, you know, the top of the corporate is a, is a fiefdom and, you know, sort of take it or leave it. Uh, and as you've maybe heard me in, in past talks, that really is a legacy of the middle of the industrial age. Uh, and just to repeat myself, if you think about Henry Ford's assembly line, uh, it was really a company about operational efficiency and if they were able to produce the cars at the right price and, uh, you know, with enough functionality, then essentially the middle class for the first time could buy automobiles and it changed the world. And so the, the way you manage a company like that is it's pure execution mode and you implement these policies based upon what has already been learned. We already know this stuff works. And so the, those functions become very rigid uh, because if you shift away from them, then you might affect your ability to produce at the right cost and, and can actually kill your market. So the output of the company is a proxy for outcome. So I want you to remember that and think about it. Output as a proxy for outcome. Uh, Nobody is in business just for output. You're actually in business for achieving the outcomes, which is hopefully customer satisfaction or passion that leads to revenue and profits and dividends and stock increases and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so all of this is all of this is, is you know sort of true. You don't see the the business colleagues as customers. You just have to follow all of these policies. Um, and that's, that's all true until, until you get disrupted, right? <laughs> until you like meet uh, Mike Tyson's punch in the face. And so in my view, that, here we are. We're being, these functions are being disrupted. And so what, what is disrupting them? Well, you know, the pandemic, obviously, the ability to work in the office, the, the fact that there's changing requirements for employees, uh, that markets have changed overnight, customers are no longer able to purchase or, or can't come to your store or they're not going out to dinner or they have no budget. Uh, so the pandemic was, was, really huge and really instrumental in increasing the digitization of a lot of these support functions. Um, remote work, obviously the hybrid of remote 
or in office work and the mass amounts of confusion in there. Uh, you know, I'm not a re, like a remote only advocate. What I'm an advocate of is that we understand what the needs of our employees are and we formulate policies that address those as best we can. Not everybody's going to be happy, but there's, you know, there's a lot of cliches around the remote work that it's, you know, all of the executives trying to get the people to come back to the office and it's all the young people that don't want to come back to the office. You know, it just simply isn't that simple and we can't make such, you know, paint with such a broad brush. The executives actually have a very nice home office and don't want to commute. Younger people actually miss the social part of it and want to be seen and need mentoring and career advice. And, uh, and there's all sorts of flavors in between. So part of the complication of that in particular is that it's just not as simple as everybody seems to make it out to be. You have the big quit, you have people burning out, uh, cyber attacks, uh, ransomware. Um, these are all things that are disrupting the normal calcified policies of support functions you know, sort of this backlash and rise of privacy. And, and of course, like in Europe, certainly the privacy uh, laws. And so digital transformation internally, this is again, sort of post pandemic where there's really been this push to kind of finally uh, update the software and tools and hardware and, you know, automate processes and really bringing those into support functions that are maybe the last to get that sort of thing, that digital transformation, but also the digital transformation externally. So that reaching into the business units and the, the way they're doing their sales and marketing and their products becoming more digitized and, you know, really sort of this massive embracing of technology everywhere. Uh, you know, we've, we've reached some sort of a tipping point. And again, as I've talked about a number of times, the technology part is actually the easy part. The hard part is getting the people in the processes to be, to work differently now that they are digitized. And of course, uh, of course, the, the technology in the end, the, you know, there's, since you're, <laughs> If you're part of the support function, you're part of this overhead, then there's really this push for using technology to replace the human beings there, which is sort of the, I don't know, the lazy approach to digital transformation. And uh, recently, as you all well know, it's, you know, the emergence of the consumer facing AI, the LLMs that have really led people to start freaking out about, uh, about this technology replacing people. And, um, it doesn't have to be that way. And that's sort of a silly way of doing things again. And we'll talk about that a little bit. So diving in a little bit, the danger to all of this to support function people is that as long as support functions are seen as overhead or cost centers, executives will seek to reduce costs, which the major cost is in headcount. So let's reduce headcount. Um, and again, AI is sort of amplifying that, but technology is 
has always been that. So it's kind of funny to me that people are freaking out about the AI thing. Maybe it's that there's a potential of doing it at a at a larger scale, and maybe it's um, reaching into the business units more than in the past. Um, so people are, are freaking out about that. But I mean, obviously robotics has been going on for ages and replacing a lot of jobs. Uh, but there are, in a lot of ways, there's a growth mindset to have around this so that if you're replacing jobs, you're doing it in a way that actually, in the end, creates more jobs. It doesn't create the same jobs, but it creates more jobs than that were shedded. And then there are ways of doing it sort of the wrong way. And there was like some... CEO that just simply fired all of his people and, and implemented AI. And I might consider that the wrong way, but uh, I guess in the end, the customers will decide that uh, it's just hard for me to fathom that working, but uh, it's also just sort of a mindset on how one approaches those things. Um, and I'm, I'm encouraging support function people to look at things like AI and go like, okay, well, how does that benefit me personally? Rather than, oh my gosh, this is gonna take my job. How do I actually leverage AI and other tools, to be honest, in order to increase my personal efficiency that I can get more value added things done? That's sort of the growth mindset. And the same thing as the, the leaders and the bosses, how do I, reduce the repeatable tasks, those tasks that AI and other technology can do well in order to free up the mentality, the creativity, the intelligence of my people so that they can start contributing uh, in ways that improve the company. And, uh, and that's sort of the growth mindset because if you're growing or you're innovating or you're succeeding, then you're potentially creating you know, you have a net increase in jobs and that's the growth mindset that I think that we want to, that we want to encourage. Um, the reality in my view is, is that if we, if we simply reduce the human contribution, because our goal is to reduce costs and we are automating everything, then the result is, is you're codifying policies that amplify that corporate antibody mentality, that perception. In other words, if you haven't actually updated your policies because we're living in the digital world, then what AI is going to do is, is going to further calcify the wrong policies that don't make you a, you know, what I call a rad company in my last book. It will not make you resilient and aware of changes and dynamically be able to adjust to the changes that are occurring in the world on a regular basis. And so there's a, you know, if you simply just go automate everything, you're you're actually automating the wrong things. And that's actually a snapshot of why a lot of this AI stuff, in my opinion, is overblown, is that the even that, you know, the internet-based LLM stuff reinforces mediocrity and conventional wisdom. So if you have nugget nuggets of insight and perception and uh and things that will change to make you better. AI doesn't capture that because it, there's nobody there to evaluate the, the truth of those things versus 
the conventional wisdom that's repeated over and over and over again. Uh, you know, the, the best example, it, in my view, something that I follow is sort of the, we should just name it, you know, the, uh, the Larry Summers phenomenon. This is an old school economist whose models that he sort of admitted to the other day you know, sort of are old, and this is the way it's always been done. And he somehow doesn't have this ability to objectively see that a lot of his old models don't apply to the existing world. And they actually have never applied to the degree that he thinks that they did. And yet he is the king of macroeconomics, conventional wisdom. And that stuff will just be repeated ad nauseum, uh, even though the policies that they derive out of those old models don't work. I mean, there's just the evidence supports all of the new economists thinking, not the old stuff. But AI is going to be right there and uh, support the conventional wisdom. That's the nature of those LLMs. And the mediocrity side of it is that, you know, we already outsource a bunch of the content and uh blog posting and all of these other things that are also outsourced that there's already been this tendency towards the mundane, average writing, average thinking, and AI, again, will just sort of reinforces that. And uh, it's, it's just reinforcing human trends. It's not inventing the, the, this negative part. It's just reinforcing the trends that are already happening. And you can even look at Hollywood in the same way, right? I mean, the, everybody's freaking out about AI in, in Hollywood producing these, you know, mundane, repeatable, boring stories. Well, I mean, that's what human beings have been doing for the last 20 years. And it's because of the, it's because of the corporates and consolidation and the mediocrity of the existing business models that AI is sort of just the last step in automating what's been, you know, sort of a, a, a race to the bottom um, to begin with. So anyway, that's a little mini rant inside of uh, our, our uh, event today. Um, so the bottom line being that I was trying to get to is that without human beings evaluating how these functions um, should function in a digital world will prevent the company from actually figuring out how to be a successful company in the digital world. So, uh, so the changes that, that I'm thinking about, let's start with the management of these functions. So I think that there's several things that need to happen in order to become more than a cost center. And the first is, is that we just have to look beyond this idea of cost efficiency. And so earlier I asked you to remember this idea of output being a proxy for outcome. So cost efficiency for the sake of cost efficiency is part of that world. If, again, if you're looking at output and you want to efficiently produce your, your output, um, that's all fine and good as long as the output is still a proxy for the outcome. So in other words, if you know that you can produce things cheaper is going to 
increase your market or it's going to benefit your market, uh, you know, then there's an argument for doing it that way. But in the digital world, I just don't find that to be true. I think that what we see is that people are willing to spend more for higher quality products or for products that are more tailored to their needs as opposed to sort of this, you know, monolithic homogeneous set of products. I mean, if you think about the, even the industrial age products like uh, consumer durable goods, you know, refrigerators and washers and dryers and microwaves, the number of models and features and all of these things that must be added to those devices in order to find niche markets in order to satisfy the varying needs of consumers is a great example. It's the exact opposite of Henry Ford's Model T. You can have it in any color as long as it's black. So the nuances of and the whims of the customers are so complex and ever-changing that you can't just produce things cheaply. You have to produce things that people want. And so the risk has moved from a technical and an operational risk to a market risk. And so no longer can you just look at cost efficiency of output. You have to look at cost efficiency of outcome. And again, I've said this a million times, on time and under budget still is the primary factor that most companies are looking at. But on time and under budget doesn't mean you can market, sell, grow, succeed in that product. And you pretty much know that you can be on time and under budget. I mean, of course, there are exceptions and disruptions that happen and supply chain issues and all of these other type of things that, by the way, are also a result of focusing purely on cost efficiency. Uh, but we have to keep the outputs in mind and then suddenly it changes the way you structure the company and it changes whether you're going to have redundant supply chains or redundant IT systems because in order to achieve the outcome, you actually have to have a more resilient product development function. You have to have redundancy where it's required um, so that if things go down, supply chains or IT systems, it's the redundancy that actually allows you to, to continue to produce the outcomes. So we have to look beyond cost efficiency of outputs. We have to look at cost efficiency of outcomes. What is required such that the business continue to serve its mission in the face of these external obstacles and disruptions? So these are sort of the questions that a management of support functions have to ask. What's required for us to be able to continue for the business to continue to serve its mission. So it's legal's job to meaningfully assess risk while supporting the future company. It kind of doesn't matter that your policies, you know, support the way the company was 10 years ago because it, it, it ain't 10 years ago anymore. So how are you actually assessing today's risk? And there are risks, obviously. There's still IP risks. There's privacy risks. There's compliance and regulations and everything. And so you have risk, but you have to weigh those risks versus the company not being able to accomplish its mission, right? So 
Is it more risky for a company not to be digital because they're scared of all the regulations? Well, no, it's more risky if they don't advance. So the, the, you have to be able to weigh the risks via uh, V the corporate objectives and the, and the mission of the business. And similarly, finance must look at ways to manage budgets that reward outcomes, not just output. So write the famous budget that has to, every dollar has to be spent by the end of the fiscal year in order to get the same budget the next year. And that's purely output. It's just, it's purely output of vanity. Uh, and so I'm not saying that all budgets have to be changed, but certainly in, in products, you could establish uh, budgets based upon performance rather than and hitting milestones and and the the repeatable part of the budget is required to sustain the existing part of the business um, but functions for improving engagement and improving uh, market share and for improving uh, uh, reaching out to different market segments or in or advancing products to a new constituency, all of those things that have a bunch of uncertainty in it, you can't just throw money at it. You actually have to throw money in tranches in order to incentivize people to hit these milestones. HR must look at ways to reward performance outcomes rather than just output. So, you know, there's a lot of change in the way corporates are trying to do performance management. Instead of doing it once a year, you know, then it comes down to once a quarter and sort of the leading authorities are like, listen, you're measuring performance every day or every week. Um, but that puts a heavy load on your, on your uh, middle managers. And so I, I don't know that companies have really figured this out. The whole concept of OKRs was supposed to get there, but uh, the moment it's brought down to sort of the individual or team level, even the OKRs become managing tasks. It's really, again, it's the equivalent of on time and under budget. Did you do these things by this calendar date? And, uh, and it's just not an efficient way to run a business in a, in a world where we have to measure the outcomes, not the output. So they have to view uh, management of these support functions needs to look at how do they, how do you get your teams to view their colleagues as internal customers? And so again, it's like, okay, well, how do we support innovation? This is a challenge to a finance team or an HR team. What do we need to do in order to support a company being more innovative or working on new products? Or how do we work? How do we support a business working like a digital company? We're digitizing everything. We've got SaaS products now, essentially. We have devices out in the field that are you know, IOT devices collecting data, we're a digital company, part of us is anyway, how do we act like a digital company? What do we need to do as support functions that can create this environment and, and influence the way people are working so that we become a digital company? How do we provide timely resources such that revenue producing groups succeed? So how do we go to the business units and how do we engage with them so that we find out what we can do as an HR or an IT team to support the business units um, hitting their numbers? And so again, you're, you're actually starting to practice being a startup, right? It's bringing this entrepreneurial spirit into these old calcified siloed, siloed uh, uh, departments. 
Um, it, it sort of reminds me of, and this is going to be a little bit wonky for some of you, but you know, sort of the the debate at the founding of this of the U.S. is it, sort of this federalism versus the unitary state, and you know, there's a vast majority of the countries in the world that are this unitary state, which really means that all of the decisions is are made at the top. Um, and so you have this sort of, you know, command and control, top-down uh, uh, organization of the government versus federalism, which is really what, what the United States is, which is this shared responsibility between a central authority and the individual uh, entities, i.e. states. And what's interesting about that, that, that that's a shared responsibility, is that the states are closer to the people, but the, but the unitary, the, the, the central function sets sort of the, the philosophy and the culture and, you know, rules around, you know, fairness or whatever. Um, I mean, sort of getting away from the government, but thinking about it as a corporation, what you need is to push your functions down into the business. Um, again, it's sort of like lean manufacturing, Genbutsu, go to the source. And so instead of just setting these uniform policies at the top, you have to have your support functions that are side by side with the business units so that the support functions can understand what the real needs are, can understand what those business units are encountering so that the business functions themselves, these GNA functions, understand what's going on in the markets and, and the world that's changing and supply chain issues and ransomware attacks, the more that they are getting into the edge of the company, the more that they can bring those the needs back to those that are forming the policies. And you give certain amount of power to those local, the federal uh, entities of uh, like the marketing functions that are regional or, you know, HR functions that are regional. Uh, it allows that you give them decision-making authority to be able to adapt policies to um, the situation that the those teams are in, whether it's, you know, a particular product line or market segment or a geographical market. And so this is where, again, I think that the management needs to really look at the way their organizations are structured and how the policies are set at the top versus learning what's needed um, out in the field. So in turn, that means that the support functions themselves need to work in a different way. And just as if they were a product or an innovation team, or what I would call like, you know, sort of a mini startup, they have to be agile. And a lot of the agile ceremonies would, uh, would be great for them, you know, planning their work in sprints, forming teams. So it's not really about individuals having to do this, but, but you form teams, the teams have missions. You create a social structure around those teams to be able to feel like they're, as a team, they can go drive impact. They're imbued with this entrepreneurial spirit. They're cross-functional when they need to be. Um, their performance is measured by them accomplishing the goals of serving their internal customers, not by how much work they do. And they are purposefully going out and connecting with the 
the business units um, and sitting side by side and, you know, even observing, you know, the, what the business teams are up to. And if there's, if they're running any agile ceremonies, then they're out observing those. And it's really getting to learn again, what, what the needs are of those business units. So you all are probably just going, gosh, this sounds great. How, how the heck will this ever happen? Well, it's interesting that I found a, uh, <laughs> I found a McKinsey article of all companies that was talking very similarly about this. Um, I don't know if they've been eavesdropping on my events here, or uh, I'm sure that there's tons of people that have figured this out on their own, but it's very interesting. They diagnose the problem correctly, but their implementation again tends to be sort of this top-down process heavy which doesn't work. I mean, what you have to do is inspire people to work this way. And then you actually have to teach it and you have to practice it. And I think it's the practicing part of it that, that is tough and, and that people don't do. And a matter of fact, after doing this for years, I think that this is really what moves the needle. What our bread and butter is, is that we, engage companies teams to practice the be the required behavior and and you know sort of like an accelerator program they last 90 days and by the end of the 90 days guess what they can do it <laughs> it's not like they it's perfect but nobody's perfect um but it's really quite extraordinary i would say that typically 90% of the people that are involved in those go like, oh my gosh, I never want to go back to the way I was working before. Because you're getting people out of the, oh, here's the 10 tasks I have to do today and getting into, okay, I have to do some of those tasks, but I also get to exercise my intelligence and my creativity to actually drive impact, to actually get to figure out how to get stuff done that will improve my team will improve my department, will improve the business unit, will improve the, the organizational outcome. And so inspiring people to work that way is uh, super rewarding, but it's also, you only get there if you practice the behavior. And of course, there's the leadership angle of that too. Uh, leaders don't want to be quote unquote trained, but they need new skills in this age, and they also need to be able to practice the behavior. Um, so some ideas on, on how to get started. I think it really kind of depends on, you know, where you are in your organizations via V, the support function. So if you're part of a support function, you know, the number one thing that you can do, and I don't think you need permission to do this, is to start going and developing empathy for those in the business units. So going and getting permission from them to observe their work. And this is, again, this could be marketing, sales, product engineering, product management, maybe going out and meeting with customers with them, just observing. You don't have to say anything. Um, but really just being, you know, just, tagging along uh, and, and, and learning about the work that's being done there. And, uh, and so that sort of falls under this, this umbrella of developing empathy for customers. And so I think that that's interviewing them as well, taking them out to lunch, just learning about their background, whether, 
their aspirations are, why do they do what they do, what are their obstacles, how can your group contribute to improving their work. So you're trying to identify these challenges that are within your group's purview, and then you do sort of this entrepreneurial spirit thing. You brainstorm solutions with your team members and maybe your your leadership and you're documenting assumptions and you're running experiments and you're aligning with uh, what the goals of your leaders are. Like, can we align some of this work with what the outcomes are supposed to be? Can we predict or hypothesize the effect that this policy that we're experimenting with would improve the ability of business units to hit their numbers, improve the way they're working. So it becomes very entrepreneurial and it's a fun way to work. And it feels like it's extra work at the beginning, but what you find is that it actually improves the execution and it maybe eliminates some of the tasks that don't really need to be done. They've just always been done a particular way. And some of the deeper work that maybe falls back to the management here then is committing to up-leveling the skills of the workers, uh, ensuring that there's alignment between uh, what these teams are working on and the company priorities, uh, and then maybe even supporting this idea of federalism, of embedding some of the functions into the, the business lines, into the, into the business work. Um, so that's, that's kind of if you're in the functions, if you're in the business side and you're kind of looking at the functions going like, holy crap, it sure would be great if they did some of this. Uh, you know, I guess the way I would approach that is to invite them to some of your ceremonies. So if you're being agile, invite the support functions to observe. If you're forming cross-functional teams to challenge or to work on, you know, challenges, business issues in your group, invite them to come and participate. Um, so it's it's starting to include them rather than perceiving them as corporate antibodies. It's including them rather than expecting them to say no to everything that you ask for. Invite them to participate. Um, you develop empathy for the, the people in the support functions, including leadership, so that you understand why they're doing what they're doing and where they're coming from, and how you might influence that over time. So I think a lot of it is just this idea of, of inviting them. Um, I think that if you're, you know, looking at this at a, in a more broad way, you know, maybe you are already starting an innovation club or some sort of uh, entrepreneurial a happy hour or, you know, regular meeting, or if you're not, I recommend it. But it's also, again, it's making sure that those functions are allowed to participate and are encouraged to participate. And you start getting this intermingling of ideas and a deeper understanding of each other and all of these things that can start leading to, you know, hey, HR, what would be great is if uh, I could become a little bit more involved in uh, in hiring, and here's how I would like to be more involved. You know, is that something that you know? How can we how can we test whether that might be of of use or something like? Or you're sharing what your big challenges are and ask them if they've got any ideas. So you're kind of trying to flip it back onto them so that they get to be the idea generators 
rather than just saying, no, you can't do that. So, um, so yeah, that's what I've got for you today. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Proof Podcast. My mission is to help as many business leaders and startup founders as I can grapple with the increased complexity and uncertainty in the business world. It would mean a lot to me if you could please leave a review of the show and share it with friends and colleagues. Wishing you all the best and remember, be kind first.